Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt. Back again to review the week's precedential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. As always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we're coming to you from the road in New Orleans. It's been a chaotic week of recording from a largely abandoned hotel room with spotty Wi-Fi and severe technical issues, all in the context of consistent, passionate, and justified Black Lives Matter protests throughout the city. In the middle of it all, we're bringing you, dear listeners, the Immigration Review, discussing this week's published immigration decisions, of which there are five. One from the Supreme Court, three from the Ninth Circuit, and one from the Eleventh. It's an eclectic batch of cases, so let's get started. Because the Supreme Court published a case this week, we're going to start with the Supreme Court. On June 1st, the Supreme Court published Nasrallah v. Barr. This case is about a statute under immigration law that prevents federal appellate courts from reviewing factual findings and explains why that statute doesn't apply to Convention Against Torture analysis. Specifically, in this case, the Supreme Court held that circuit courts of appeals have jurisdiction to review factual findings underlying the denial of an application for torture convention protection, and that circuit courts must review those findings under the substantial evidence standard of review. This case reverses and vacates the decision issued in this case by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. It also abrogates contrary holdings from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, and 8th Circuits, and upholds decisions from the 7th and 9th Circuits. It's a 7-2 decision written by Justice Kavanaugh, with Justices Thomas and Alito dissenting. As with so many cases before the Supreme Court, the issues are purely legal. Here they are. The Immigration and Nationality Act includes a couple of provisions that strip the federal circuit courts of jurisdiction, or authority, to review removal orders and immigration issues. However, and notwithstanding the jurisdiction-stripping provisions, federal courts always have authority to review questions of law and constitutional questions. One of those jurisdiction-stripping provisions, and the one at issue in this case, states that, with cases involving non-citizens who have committed certain crimes, federal courts cannot review any factual challenges to the final order of removal issued by the BIA. So, for example, in the case of a non-citizen convicted of murder who applied for cancellation of removal, the federal courts would generally not be able to review the immigration judge's finding that, for example, the non-citizen lacked good moral character. Okay, so there's some Jurisdiction 101. Now for what happened in this case. Mr. Nasrallah was ordered removed by an immigration judge, but his removal to Lebanon was withheld under the Convention Against Torture, based in part on the fact that he had been tortured in the past by Hezbollah. But the BIA reversed the immigration judge. Mr. Nasrallah challenged the BIA's reversal before the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, but the 11th Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction, or authority, to review any of the Convention Against Torture findings due to INA Section 242A2C, the jurisdiction-stripping provision I referred to earlier. And the 11th Circuit held that it lacked jurisdiction because of Mr. Nasrallah's criminal conviction. The Supreme Court decided to take the case and disagreed with the 11th Circuit, holding that, 
based on the plain text and legislative history surrounding INA Section 242A2C, that jurisdiction stripping provision only bars factual challenges to a, quote, final order of removal, end quote. Under INA Section 101A47A, a final order of removal is a final order concluding that the alien is deportable or ordering deportation. But as the Supreme Court explained, a Convention Against Torture, or CAT, finding has nothing to do with the order of removal. In all cases where CAT protection is granted or denied, there already exists a final order of removal. CAT merely withholds or defers execution of that final order of removal to the designated country, because if the individual is removed, it is more likely than not that he or she will be tortured. So, because of the Supreme Court's decision in this case, the Circuit Courts of Appeals can review the factual issues underlying a denial of CAT protection, and must do so under the Substantial Evidence Standard of Review. Under that standard, the Circuit Courts must uphold the BIA's findings of fact unless any reasonable adjudicator would be compelled to conclude to the contrary. Not the best standard of review for non-citizens, but also not unexpected. And well, it's better than nothing. And so that's the holding, a bit of a sea change from the Supreme Court. Here are some practice pointers and observations. First, as many in the Twitterverse have noticed, this is now the second immigration decision written by Justice Kavanaugh, and it's the second time he's expressly and intentionally used the word non-citizen instead of alien. It would appear that a movement is underfoot. Next, while the Supreme Court states that it leaves for another day whether it can review the factual findings underlying withholding of removal challenges under the Immigration and Nationality Act, I see no reason why it would not. Because withholding of removal, like torture convention protection, also presupposes a final order of removal. And the dissent expresses this very fear. I say embrace it. Another observation. The Supreme Court bases its decision in part on the fact that Congress did not expressly preclude judicial review under the circumstances presented, though it would have been easy for Congress to do so by writing it into the statute. This argument, and the Supreme Court's language in this case, can be relied upon any time oil argues at the circuit level for an expansive interpretation of a jurisdiction-stripping provision. Finally, in reading this decision, there seems to be a bit of an elephant in the room. Let's assume that a non-citizen convicted of a crime applies for asylum and cat protection. Let's further assume that the circuit finds, as it is now able to do, that the BIA made erroneous factual findings to support its torture analysis, and remands proceedings back to the BIA to reconsider CAT. Fair enough. But if the circuit found that the BIA's torture findings were fatally flawed, there's a pretty good chance that the BIA's asylum findings were fatally flawed too. It seems to me that with the right legal maneuvering, creative lawyers may be able to get the BIA to reconsider asylum, even though a circuit only reviewed and remanded for CAT. And that is Nasrallah v. Barr. Moving on from the Supreme Court, the first case out of the Ninth Circuit we're going to touch on is Gregorian v. Barr, published on June 2, 2020. This is a case about asylum termination, reports of investigation, and due process. Pretty complicated procedural history, so I'll try to streamline it a bit. 
The petitioners are a family from Armenia who received asylum in the United States based on the past persecution the patriarch of the family, Mr. Gregorian, suffered in 2001 on account of his membership in one of Armenia's main political parties. Four years later, USCIS terminated Mr. Gregorian's asylum status because it determined he had submitted fraudulent documents. USCIS then placed the entire family in removal proceedings before an immigration judge, and the IJ ordered them removed. But then, in 2012, the Ninth Circuit held in Nijar v. Holder that USCIS lacks authority to terminate asylum status, so the case went back before the IJ. In the second proceedings, the same IJ ended up terminating the family's asylum status herself, and again ordered the Gregorian family removed. The IJ's decision was based largely on a one-page report of investigation, or ROI, submitted by DHS over Mr. Gregorian's objection. The ROI was created by USCIS and indicated that a DHS officer had asked the USCIS Moscow office to investigate documents produced by Mr. Gregorian, and that USCIS Moscow had then sent the request to the U.S. Embassy in Armenia, and that that office had identified indicia of fraud in four of the Armenian documents. Mr. Gregorian and his attorneys were never provided the names of any of the USCIS officers, and were not provided with the specific aspects of the documents deemed fraudulent. Even though Mr. Gregorian proved that his hearing that two of the documents were not fraudulent, and even though he presented additional evidence of the harm he suffered in Armenia, the IJ terminated his asylum status and that of his families, and ordered him and the family removed to Armenia. The BIA affirmed. Lots of holdings by the Ninth Circuit in this one. So here they are one by one. First, the court held that even though the Ninth Circuit's 2012 case Najar v. Holder does not allow USCIS to terminate asylum status in the Ninth Circuit, USCIS may still file a notice to appear and initiate removal proceedings and recommend that an immigration judge terminate asylum, as occurred in this case. Okay, fair enough. But second, the Ninth Circuit made expressly clear that individuals like the Gregorians, who have entered the United States with asylum status, are afforded the full panoply of constitutional rights, including Fifth Amendment due process. And finally, the Ninth Circuit held that by relying on the ROI without allowing the Gregorians to cross-examine the USCIS officers, the agency violated the Gregorians' due process rights, specifically citing the cases out of the Third, Fourth, Sixth, and Eighth Circuits. The court held that the ROI report, quote, did not provide sufficient information about the fraud investigation, and the Gregorians were not afforded a meaningful opportunity to rebut its allegations, end quote. What DHS should have done, according to the Ninth Circuit, was, quote, identify the named individuals, present supporting evidence to explain the nature of the investigation, produce the referenced exemplars in the fraudulent document, and or proffer any government witnesses about the alleged fraud, end quote. Absent that, it would appear that a due process violation occurs in the Ninth Circuit if an IJ relies upon an ROI. For these reasons, the IJ's reliance on the ROI made the immigration court proceedings fundamentally unfair and therefore invalid. Practitioners, keep this case in your back pocket because DHS appears to be relying on ROIs more and more often in removal proceedings. Some pretty good language in this one. Here's some more good stuff. 
the Ninth Circuit made clear that, quote, the mere fact that the ROI is a DHS document does not absolve the government from affording the Gregorians a fair opportunity to rebut its assertions, end quote. I could see a similar argument being made with other government documents, such as, say, an I-213. Next, this case really also highlights the importance of burdens. As the Ninth Circuit implies at footnote 9, this case may have come out differently if the Gregorians had the burden of proof. But because it is an asylum termination case, DHS bears the burden of proof, and it cannot meet that burden without giving the non-citizens a fundamentally fair chance to address DHS's allegations of fraud, which would appear to include making the witnesses and the documents available for cross-examination and inspection. And finally, at footnote 2, the Ninth Circuit reaches a certain conclusion by stating, quote, We make this assumption because nothing else makes sense. End quote. I look forward to one day quoting that language in a brief myself. And that is Gregorian Vibar. Next up out of the Ninth Circuit, we've got Roy V. Barr, published on June 4th, 2020. This is a derivative citizenship case, and citizenship cases can be notoriously complicated. Because this case is not so relevant to removal defense practitioners, and because the issues aren't likely to come up again very often, we're not going to spend too much time on it, but here it is. There are many ways to become a U.S. citizen. Individuals can be born in the U.S. or they can naturalize, usually requiring that the non-citizen first be a lawful permanent resident for many years. But individuals born abroad can also derive citizenship through their parents. The petitioner in this case, Miss Roy, was born in Fiji, but claimed she derived citizenship from her father. The law for derivative citizenship has changed over the years, and the law that governs it is whatever law was in effect at the time of claimed citizenship. In this case, that year is 1983, the year Miss Roy's father became a naturalized U.S. citizen. And again, just as an aside, the law has changed on much of what happens in this case since 1983. But at the time in 1983, the applicable law, 8 U.S.C. section 1432A3, provided that, so long as some other requirements are met, the child of unmarried parents born abroad becomes a U.S. citizen when either, one, the parents are legally separated, and the parent with legal custody over the child naturalizes, or two, the mother naturalizes, so long as the child was born out of wedlock and the father's paternity has not been established. So some pretty strict requirements there. Miss Roy doesn't meet either of these two avenues. She was born out of wedlock, but the paternity of her father is known. In fact, he took care of her. When she was under 18, her father naturalized, and she went to live with him in the United States. She was placed in removal proceedings eventually, and claimed that she derived citizenship from her father in 1983. Unable to meet those 1983 requirements, however, Miss Roy argued that by excluding people like her, the 1983 law violates the equal protection rights protected under the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which would require that Miss Roy show that Congress, in enacting the law, treated similarly situated people differently. Specifically, Miss Roy claimed that the law failed to, quote, recognize the rights of fathers who act as sole caretakers for their out-of-wedlock children, end quote. 
the Ninth Circuit acknowledged that the law discriminates on the basis of gender, but that's not always enough for a federal court to find a federal statute unconstitutional. Here, the Ninth Circuit didn't actually reach that issue because it simply held that Miss Roy and her father did not suffer a gender-based distinction. Rather, Miss Roy simply failed to meet the statute's requirements. Again, even though her father had custody of her, there was never a legal separation between her parents because they were never married. So, because Miss Roy doesn't meet the 1983 law's requirements for derivative citizenship, Miss Roy is not a citizen, and her claim was dismissed. She will likely be removed to Fiji. Pretty specific facts to this case, but here are a few legal observations. Usually, citizenship claims begin in district court, but here Miss Roy did not assert her citizenship claim until she was placed in removal proceedings. Now, an immigration judge does not have authority to make someone a citizen. Only a federal U.S. district court judge, or USCIS as well, can conclusively decide whether someone is a U.S. citizen. But if in immigration court, Miss Roy established a plausible claim to citizenship, DHS would not have been able to meet its burden to establish her removability, because you can't remove a U.S. citizen. So in that scenario, the IJ would have had to terminate proceedings. It is therefore possible, though unlikely, for a non-citizen to establish a plausible claim of citizenship in immigration court sufficient to avoid removal, but insufficient to actually obtain U.S. citizenship. Just another weird quirk of immigration law. Also, and this shows how cruel the law can be sometimes. Because of changes in the law since 1983, if all of this happened today, Miss Roy would probably be a U.S. citizen. But because 1983 law applies, she's not. And that is Roy V. Barr. The next case is a bit of a short one out of the Ninth Circuit on June 2nd, 2020, Moran V. Barr. This case is about CIMTs, or crimes involving moral turpitude, and a California vehicular flight from a police officer while driving against traffic statute. Specifically, in this case, the Ninth Circuit held that violation of Cal Vehicle Code Section 2800.4, which is the vehicular flight from a police officer while driving against traffic statute, is a crime involving moral turpitude. To reach this holding, the Ninth Circuit applied the categorical approach, and that requires a comparison of the elements of the vehicular flight crime with the elements of a CIMT. The vehicular flight statute requires, as an element, that the defendant operate a motor vehicle and, with the intent to evade, willfully flee police officers and willfully drive the vehicle onto a highway in the opposite direction of traffic. CIMTs, in turn, are crimes with elements that are inherently base or vile, and usually require fraud. However, non-fraudulent crimes can qualify as CIMTs if they require, as an element, an intent to injure someone, an actual injury, or a protected class of victims. In this case, the Ninth Circuit also held, without quotations or really even a citation, that in addition, quote, non-fraudulent category also includes some crimes that seriously endanger others, even if no actual injury occurs, end quote. And as the Ninth Circuit explained, consistent with recent BIA precedent, for particularly dangerous crimes, a less culpable mens rea, or mental state, 
may satisfy the CIMT definition. Here, because the statute requires a culpable mental state, willful evasion of police officers into oncoming traffic, and a sufficiently high danger to others, the Ninth Circuit held that Cal Vehicle Code Section 28.4 matches the CIMT definition. And that's the holding. One quick thing. Over the last decade or two, the Ninth Circuit has issued quite a few decisions analyzing the various California vehicular flight statutes. Many of those decisions have come out favorable for non-citizens. This one did not because the statute includes, as an element, willfully driving into oncoming traffic. But this decision and its analysis is pretty specific to the crime at issue, and the Ninth Circuit's other California vehicular flight decisions analyzing crimes without that element remain good law. And that is Moran v. Barr. Our final case this week is out of the 11th Circuit, the circuit I currently practice in. And I believe it's the first 11th Circuit case on the podcast. This is Point Du Jour v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on June 4, 2020. This case is about ineffective assistance of counsel and substantial compliance with the BIA procedural requirements laid out in matter of Lazada. A bit of background. Even though non-citizens are not provided free attorneys in immigration court, as criminal defendants are in state and federal criminal proceedings, if non-citizens do obtain an attorney on their own in immigration court, they have a constitutionally protected right to effective assistance of counsel. If they don't receive effective assistance, and if they suffer prejudice as a result, removal proceedings must be done over. However, in order to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, non-citizens must comply with the BIA's 1988 case matter of Lazada, which requires that the non-citizen 1. provide an affidavit explaining the scope of representation by former counsel and what counsel did or did not do, 2. inform former counsel of the allegations of ineffective assistance and provide them an opportunity to respond, and 3. provide evidence regarding whether a formal bar complaint has been made against former counsel, and if not, why? In this case, the 11th Circuit assumed that substantial compliance with Lazada, rather than strict compliance with each required element, would suffice to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim, but held that Mr. Dujour had not substantially complied with Lazada. Specifically, even though he filed a bar complaint against his prior attorney, and even though he tried to reach his prior attorney by phone numerous times, he never informed his prior attorney in writing of the ineffective assistance of counsel allegations, or provided him an opportunity to respond. Accordingly, the 11th Circuit denied Mr. DeJour's petition for review because he did not substantially comply with matter of Lazada. Pretty straightforward holding. Here are some practice pointers and notes. First, not all circuit courts of appeals mandate strict compliance with all of Lozada's requirements to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. In a mind-bogglingly frustrating sentence, the 11th Circuit in this case notes that in past published decisions, it has not required strict compliance with Lozada, but that those cases have not conclusively held whether strict compliance with Lozada is necessary. Then, the 11th Circuit in this very case decides to punt on the issue and will not yet decide whether strict compliance is necessary to bring an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Incredible. All of that being said, however, the fact that the 11th Circuit has entertained ineffective assistance of counsel claims in cases in the past, including this very case, 
where Lazada has not been strictly complied with, makes for a strong argument that strict compliance with Lazada is not required in the 11th Circuit under current law. That being said, it's definitely best practice to strictly comply with Lazada. Finally, this case just goes to show that everything, and especially allegations of ineffective assistance, should be made in writing, and that practitioners should track every step of the way when they bring such claims. And that is Point Du Jour v. U.S. Attorney General. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. For questions, comments, or anything at all, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com. That's K-G-R-E-G-G at kktplaw.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. Or send us a tweet at imreview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.